1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here is your top five at five. Can stocks make it a turnaround Friday? Markets bouncing back late Thursday. Was that a bear market bounce or something bigger? Futures, they're higher. Crypto also making a bounce back, with Bitcoin back above 30K, but is the crypto crumble also really over? a not so soft landing. Fed your Jay Powell throwing cold water at any guarantees for beating inflation without sending the American economy into recession. Also, he gets the green light for a second go as head of the Fed. Send me an angel, one high profile investor looking to drum up millions to help Elon Musk's Twitter bid get over the finish line. And your top five insider buys are back, led by one really big name, the stock that has been slammed all year. It's all ahead on this Friday the 13th. This is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. And as always, welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I think I speak for everybody on the great Worldwide Exchange team when I say TGIF. It's day eight. All right, let's get right now to your Friday money, stock futures. They're looking pretty good on a Friday. They are higher across the board. You got NASDAQ futures up nearly 2%. So it does look like, at least now, that it could be a nice pop for big tech today. That after a nice recovery late yesterday. Yes, the Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ all ended the day lower. But they ended well off their lows. In fact, the Dow was off 500 points from its intraday low. Couldn't quite get in the green, but a pretty big rally under the hood to end the day. Still a very tough week. All three major indexes down between 35 and 6%. We'll see if we can maybe mitigate some of those losses today. In bonds, 10-year yields right now are a little bit higher at 2.91%. They have also come down below 3% this week. They sold stocks. They bought bonds. That actually may help ease mortgage rates just a tiny bit. Oh, and by the way, Fed Chair Jay Powell saying yesterday that two half-point rate hikes are basically all but guaranteed at the June and July Fed meetings, basically kind of hitting the market over the head that rates are going to rise by another 1% in the next two months. In the oil market, crude oil right now also higher to about $106.50 per barrel. All this the House gets set to vote on a bill next week that would allow states and the federal government to go after companies, maybe even local gas station owners, over what they consider to be, quote, excessive prices. More on that coming up. And in crypto, which has really been the market story of the last few days, also seeing a bounce back, at least with the big coins. We are seeing Bitcoin and Ether all higher. Bitcoin back above 30,000. It fell below 25,000 at one point yesterday. So a 5,000 plus point swing in the last 24 hours. We're also watching Tether right now. Tether is, of course, the biggest so-called stable coin. It fell below its $1 peg on Thursday, rattled a lot of people. It is still below a buck, but not by much, a couple of cents. And that so-called breaking the buck has been a big market catalyst and a source of worry in the past 24 to 48 hours. And then there's this, Luna. Luna, the other stablecoin offshoot, it is now at zero. Luna, look at that. It is completely wiped out at zero uh, we'll get more on Luna coming up all day here on CNBC.com. But if you invested in Luna, as the lunatics call themselves have, that has been, it's not gone, but it's effectively zero. All right, let's go down around the world. Asia closing out the week with strong gains. The Nikkei in Japan finishing up 2% with shares of SoftBank jumping more than 9% despite reporting a record loss at its Vision Fund. Hang Seng and the Kospi in Korea also closing up more than 2%, but SoftBank... And uh, the Nikkei have been hit hard all week long. In Europe, we are also seeing nice gains across the board to end what has also been a rough week there as well. So maybe a little optimism to end the week. Juliana Tadelbaum is at our London newsroom with a look at the early trade there. We're a lot of Boston Celtic green down three to two to Miami (laughs) or Milwaukee, rather, are on the board. Juliana, what do you got for us?
2: Brian, always representing my home state. Um, as for markets, Brian, there is some positive momentum brewing here in Europe. But as we've seen in several of the last trading sessions, things can change on a dime. But right now, we've got green across the board, a pretty healthy rally, um, a continuation of what we saw late in the day yesterday. Ultimately, the stock 600, the main benchmark, did end yesterday lower, but it could have been a lot worse. So the positive momentum can- continues to build. FTSE 100 here in the UK, up about 1.4% this morning. Uh, same gains for the CAC 40 over in France. The DAX not far behind, up about 1.3%. Uh, the Swiss market, which tends to be more defensive, still up about 0.9%. So really broad-based rally today as investors put a little bit more money back into risk assets. From a sector perspective, this is what the split looks like. Green across the board here as well. At the top of the board, we've got travel and leisure gaining about 2.6%. So really outsized performance there. Technology also catching a bit up about 2%. Banks performing quite well, up about 1.9%. There is uh, a lot of talk around a a July rate hike from the European Central Bank. Of course, that would be a positive for net interest margin for the banking sector. On the downside, we have telecoms, the worst performer in the bunch, but still, that defensive basket of stocks is up about 0.6%. Autos up 0.7%, and oil and gas gaining ground as well, the three worst performers this morning. So Brian, um, no doubt about it, the momentum is positive, but let's see if it sticks
1: couple hours to go. Try to end the week strong. Juliana, thank you very much. All right. Now to some of this morning's major headlines, including the very latest on China's draconian and often bizarre policies around COVID and literally locking people inside their own homes. Bertha Coombs is here now with that and more. Good morning, Bertha.
3: Hey, good morning, Brian. Chinese immigration officials are denying reports that they've been suspending passports and other documents preventing residents from traveling abroad. Officials say they are still providing services for, quote, necessary trips outside of the country. A statement following an announcement earlier in the week that China would strictly limit unnecessary overseas travels by citizens to minimize the risks of a resurgence in COVID cases caused by international travelers. Meantime, Salesforce has told its employees that it will provide financial support to help them relocate if they're worried about access to abortions or other medical procedures, the company revealing that move in an internal message, which has been viewed by CNBC. It's also announcing access to mental health services. The move follows the leaked draft of the expected ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court that would strike down Roe v. Wade. The Senate confirming Jay Powell for a second four-year term to lead the central bank, lawmakers voting 80 to 19, ending the long-delayed vote after President Biden nominated Powell back in November. And amid that confirmation, Powell is warning that getting inflation under control could cause some economic pain. In a new interview, Powell says... Whether we can execute a soft landing or not, it may actually depend on factors that we don't control. Inflation is just way too high here in the United States. And by the way, the same all over the world, he says. The process of getting inflation down to 2% will also include some pain. Powell adds that with perfect hindsight, it probably would have been better for us to have raised rates a little sooner. Yeah, a lot of folks have been saying that for a while, Brian.
1: Or maybe never printed trillions of dollars when half the country never locked down and actually ended up making more money than they did prior to the pandemic. There are many things that history will say that perhaps we could have done differently. Bertha Coombs, another Boston Celtics fan. Bertha, thank you. We'll see you in a bit. Yeah. All right, let's get back down to the markets and your money. And your next guest says the biggest risk to investors right now may actually be Positive surprises. Ryan Payne is the president of Payne Capital Management and joins us now. Ryan, what do you mean by that?
4: Well, I think we're going to a point now, Brian, where, you know, the world is bullish on pessimism. Um, if you look at it, I mean, really, like every dire scenario at this point is priced into the market, right? Whether it's a 75 basis point rate hike at this point, um, you know, whether it's inflation doesn't go down uh, over the course of the next couple months, so I think at this point, you're getting to a point where it's really been a sentiment-driven sell-off. I mean, because let's face it, yesterday we had the 10-year Treasury down, yet markets still sold off. So I wonder at this point how we priced in uh, essentially the fact that interest rates are going higher. And your biggest risk here is we start to get some positive news, you know, whether it's earnings surprises. And we know we had a pretty good quarter for earnings anyway, um, you know, maybe we ratchet down the conflict in, in Eastern Europe. So there's, there's a lot of things that can happen at this point, I think. I think the, the market's discounting, isn't discounting enough any positive news that we could see over the next couple of months, long story short.
1: Well, what if we get, we just talked about the Fed, what if we get a Fed that flips? I know they're saying that in June and July they're going to raise rates, but the market has already adjusted for that. If you're waiting for the Fed to raise to make a move, <laughs> I got some yeah. beachfront property in Arizona, Lake Havasu that I want to sell you. So the market already knows this. What if in the second half of the year, Ryan, they flip, they get more dovish, indicate they're not going to raise rates, you know, six, seven, eight times. What then?
4: Well, that's where you can have a massive melt up here, right? Because look, nothing's changed, Brian. Um, You know, we still have investors sitting with trillions of dollars in cash sitting on the sidelines. And you and I know in an inflationary environment, the worst place to be is sitting in cash because you're earning nothing on your money. So money has to be productive somewhere. And, and it's a great point there, because the one thing about America is, look, it's all about filling a need, supply and demand. So if we think that these supply chains aren't going to get fixed, you know, I have some lakefront property i like to sell you. <laughs> you know, because the reality of it is, in America, we figure these things out, right? I mean, think, take the masks. You couldn't get a mask yeah. when the pandemic started. Within two months, you know, you, we had abundance of masks. Wherever you went, you could grab a mask. So I think any supply chain issue is going to get fixed over the next Twelve months, twenty-four months, and that's very, very deflationary. So I think the big surprise here can be that inflation does come down, um, the Fed does become more dovish, and again, yeah. it's risk-on again. We're back to the races, so you kind of want to take advantage of the fact that we've got these low prices right now because it's not going to last forever. Yeah.
1: No. Speaking of low prices, can we? I don't know, guys. If we could throw Luna, which is uh, the the stablecoin offshoot, up, and I'm asking this for a reason, Ryan. I just tweeted this out. In 2001, we had sketchy internet stocks that were highly valued, then they went to zero. In 2008, we had mortgage lenders and some big banks that were sketchy, we found out, that were high flyers, and then went to zero. Right now, we've got sketchy crypto. Luna, it's at zero right now. I mean, I know it's still trading, and you can go back to the, what is that, the 10,000th decimal point? But (laughs) Luna, which was a super high flyer just a couple of months ago, is now a zero, does things like this, these sort of obscure corners or even not even that obscure corners of the crypto market, do they matter to the equity markets? Is it a is it a pain trade? Is it a is it a cash raising trade? Do you care?
4: I think no, I think it's a good point because we have seen an unwinding in the crypto market and it's been a lot of pain. No pun intended. That's my last name. And I think that is the problem here, Brian, is there's a lot of leverage in that market. And it's very indicative of, of these other bubbles that we've seen in the past. And you know, you've seen this at like places like Coinbase, where you can borrow against your Bitcoin. Um, you can borrow against a lot of these coins. And you're getting like 25% you know, interest rates that you get paid in these, these other cryptocurrencies. So someone's borrowing those cryptocurrencies on the other side. They're speculating with that money and so on and so forth. So it's just like the biggest casino we've ever seen. And I think a lot of that, that leverage was clearly unwinded over the course of the last couple of days and that clearly bleeded over, uh, to the equity markets. So, you know, I think there could be, and there's obviously going to be, and not obviously, but I think there's going to be more pain there, uh, as well because at the end yeah. of the day, like these other stable coins, we don't know what they're backed by. You know, there's no clarity around if they're backed by real assets. I, you know, that, that one coin was backed by yeah. more B- Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, it's, so it's just like a, it's just like a yeah. huge house of cards.
1: Yeah, and, I, and I, I tweeted out that they were related. People said, well, I don't understand why they'd be related because you got to sell what has value. So it's clear that there are at least some people. Uh, Bill Miller, I think, yesterday on CNBC said he's selling stocks to pay for margin calls on crypto. Maybe I got it exactly wrong, but you get the point that you have to sell what has value to raise money for something else. Ryan Payne of Payne Capital Management, great to have you on Friday. And so for no more pain in this Ryan. market, Ryan,
4: have a great weekend. Thank nope. you. No okay, gain, no gain, brother. All right.
1: The, the, and we're going to learn that. And we are learning it. All right. And we are just getting started on a Friday when we come back. Your mornings? Big money movers. And what has Robinhood shares finally getting a little pop after hitting a new all-time low? And call in the gasoline police? As the pain at the pump continues, Summon Congress trying to pass a law that would go after oil and gas companies for what they consider price gouging. They could even come for your local gas station owner. Later, a Worldwide Exchange exclusive. In the intro, CEO of fertilizer producer Nutrient. It's the biggie. It's live, talking to supply shortages, spiking food and fertilizer costs. That is a Worldwide Exchange exclusive. It's up in a couple of minutes. Grab another cup of coffee, and we are back right after this.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.
1: Time out for your Friday, Big Money Movers, three key stock stories that are happening right now. Stock number one, Affirm, shares are surging as the buy-now, pay-later firm reported a smaller third-quarter loss. Revenue jumped more than 50%, helped by higher interest income and loan volumes, as well as a big jump in users. Firm also raised its sales guidance for the year and has extended its partnership with Spotify. Affirm CEO spoke with Jim Cramer on Mad Money last night.
6: Consumer is alive and well. They're shopping, they're buying, they're paying their, uh, their loans, at least to a firm, quite well. And uh, generally speaking, things are going according to plan. Uh, the upheaval of the stock markets does not seem to have an actual impact on our underlying business, which is performing really, really well.
1: Investors could use a pop. A firm shares down 82% this year. Stock number two, another beaten down name, Robinhood. Those shares are also higher. This is after a filing reveals that Sam Bankman-Fried, he's the CEO of the crypto exchange FTX, has taken a more than 7% stake in the trading platform. That would make him Robinhood's third largest shareholder. And stock three is FIGS. It is tumbling today after first quarter results missed forecasts and the company cut its sales outlook for the year. FIGS makes medical scrubs, another apparel for the healthcare industry, while well, it did gain more clients and revenue per customer rose, profit was squeezed by higher shipping and operating costs. FIGS is down big, nearly 30% right now. All right, still to come on this Friday as stock futures, they are higher across the board. A bonus Friday edition of the RBI and maybe the two stocks that perfectly sum up the markets this year. You're going to want to see this, and it's next. Stick around. All right, Welcome or welcome back and good Friday morning. Let's talk energy and politics because the House is set to vote next week on a bill that would go after anyone or any company found to be price gouging on oil, gasoline, jet fuel or other refined products. The so-called Consumer Fuel Price Gouging Prevention Act makes it against the law for any person or company to sell fuel at a price that is seen as, quote, unconscionably excessive. I would suggest price gouging. The law would kick in only after the president declares some kind of an energy emergency. Now, the text of the bill says the priority is to go after companies that sell more than $500 million in fuels per year. And based on a stock screener we ran, that would be about 54 public American companies. Though the bill is clearly designed to go after big oil, the language of it would also seemingly allow states to go after your local gas station owner if they were found to be charging what someone determined to be too high of prices. Penalties under the law would include things like fines and bringing other civil actions. So it is possible that state authorities could go after single gas station owners if someone, and again, it's not clear who, determines they are charging what, again, someone determines would be an excessive price. The House will revisit and possibly vote on that law Monday. It is important to note that actions like this have been around for a long time. In fact, in 2008, when gas prices and oil prices were high as well, a similar proposal was brought up, also backed by Washington Senator Maria Cantwell, who is leading this new bill again 14 years later. All right, coming up, the White House stepping into the baby formula shortage crisis, looking to get critical food for infants back on empty store shelves, the very latest ahead. And during May, we're celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Is Richard Bernstein Advisors, Deputy CIO, Dan Suzuki.
5: My advice to the community would be, don't be afraid to stick out. Prove to people that you're unique and that you're much more than your racial identity. And don't forget that it's a two-way street. Just as you want to feel included in all society's circles, Make sure that you're doing your part to include others into your circles because how can you expect them to see the beauty of your culture and your individual personality unless you allow them to get close enough to see it for themselves.
1: The bulls looking to mount a charge into the weekend. Futures are pointing to a higher open to end what has been another tough week on Wall Street. Cryptos crushed. More than $200 wiped out in the market in one day this morning. New questions about the stability of so-called stable coins. Plus a vote of confidence the corporate insiders that believe in their stocks and are willing to put their own money on the line. Your top five insider buys are back. It's not scary. It's Friday, May 13th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Oh, welcome or welcome back. And good Friday morning, everybody. It is not quite 530. It's close. Thanks for being with us. I'm Brian Sullivan. Let's get right now to your Friday money and things look a lot better today. Than they have pretty much all week long. We are seeing stock futures. They are higher across the board. NASDAQ futures are up more than 2% right now. So it looks like maybe a Friday pop. All that after a late bounce yesterday. Yeah, the Dow, the S&P and the NASDAQ all ended lower. And if you didn't pay attention to the action, you saw it and said, OK, they ended in the red again. But that didn't really tell the story because they all rallied as hard as they could in the end of the day. Couldn't quite get in the green, but the Dow rose 500 points from its intraday low. So we'll see if that momentum yesterday carries over into the markets today. Crypto, that's really been the market story all week long. Right now, like stock futures looking a lot better, we are seeing all the major coins, Bitcoin, Ether, etc. They are higher and Bitcoin is back above 30,000. At one point yesterday, it fell below 25,000. So you think about that, Bitcoin had a more than 5,000-point swing in 24 hours. We talked about intestinal fortitude. That defines it right there. All right, now those are the biggies, but we also got to look at two others. First, this is Tether. Tether is the biggest so-called stablecoin. What is that? Well, it's meant to mean a one-to-one peg with the dollar, kind of like a money market fund. Right. This is the undercarriage, the, the, the mechanical being of the currency and crypto markets in many way. Tether at one point fell below that dollar to dollar peg on Thursday. It's still just under that right now, but effectively at a buck. That's good news. But unfortunately, many manias end in wipeouts and we have one right now. Luna completing its crash. Luna this morning is now at zero. It was 115 just one month ago. Now, it is not gone-gone, but it is all but worthless, unless you go out to the 10,000th decimal point. We'll get more on all of this and what exactly happened right there in just a moment. Well, normally on Fridays, we don't do the RBI. We do insider buying instead. But today, we kind of figured we had to show you something which may perfectly exemplify this market year so far. The once-darling lockdown stocks have been crushed. We know that. Old-school names are loved once again. And so look at this. This is a chart showing Zoom's market cap versus Exxon's market cap over the last couple of years. Why do we show you this? Because you can see at one point in October that where the blue line goes above the orange, Zoom's market value actually was $20 billion more then ExxonMobil, out with the old, in with the new. Exxon, that year, did $176 billion in sales. Zoom came in at $627 million. Exxon did 28000 more in revenue than Zoom. But investors didn't care. Fun video calls good, fossil fuels bad. Well, how much has changed since then? Now, Exxon is worth $340 billion more than Zoom as that stock has lost 79% from a record high. The point is not to dunk on Zoom or to golf clap for Exxon. It is just hopefully a reminder that things in the market move quickly. And maybe, just maybe, that is so far the chart of the year. A Friday, random, but hopefully interesting. All right, let's move on. Now to some of this morning's top corporate headlines outside of that. Bertha Coombs is back with some of these. Bertha top that chart.
3: Yeah, no golf clubs here, but startup investor Jason Kalkanis is raising millions of dollars for Elon Musk's Twitter bid. Kalkanis is best known as an early backer of Uber and Robinhood and is a longtime friend of Musk's. The angel investor is soliciting funds from high net worth individuals with the requirement for people to commit to to at least $250,000. Twitter shares, meantime, are trading below Musk's purchase price of $54.20 per share. The Biden administration says the U.S. will increase baby formula imports as the nation looks to deal with a major shortage. Recent data shows more than 40 percent of formula supplies were out of stock at stores across the country. This month, the nation's largest formula manufacturer, Abbott Nutrition, closed its plant in Michigan and made a recall to uh, deal with contamination issues. It's looking to restart production there within the next week week or so, if given the green light by the FDA, but it would still take six to eight weeks to get production back on shelves. And Nissan is considering adding a third auto factory in the U.S. as it looks to keep up with demand for electric vehicles. The company currently has plants in Mississippi and Tennessee. Brian, that baby formula story so tough for parents right now. There's just not really much of an alternative.
1: And Bertha, do we do we know exactly why? I mean, where did it all go? That's the thing. Is it is it hoarding? Is it supply shortages? Is it see all the above?
3: It's all of the above. So they had a recall because of some concerns about possible bacterial contamination. There were some children who were sick. And then, you know, if you're a parent and you know that there's not going to be much formula, you're going to buy some more. So there are a lot of stores that are limiting how much you can buy at any one time. But once you switch your baby over to formula, if they're really young and they're months old, it's really difficult to move on to foods so it's it's a really difficult situation for parents of, of young children
1: it, my my kids were for were raised on infamil for for many various reasons and i remember that transition and let's just say it's expensive already and if you can't find it as a parent i imagine yeah. you're gonna you're gonna get pretty emotional you're gonna get a little nervous About that. Bertha Coombs. It was actually one of the
3: one of the most big increases when it came to consumer prices last month.
1: I mean, of all the things, that's the one they should keep down. Bertha, thank you very much. All right. Right now, though, let's talk crypto. Okay, they are higher right now. But overall, of course, lately, most have been slammed. Bitcoin is on track for a seventh straight weekly loss. That's a record. This is the collapse of a so-called stablecoin, the Terra UST, ripples through the market. Terra broke its one-to-one peg to the dollar. It's a mechanism for remaining stable using another digital token that failed. The world's biggest stablecoin, Tether, is also under pressure, although pretty much back to -to one-to-one. That's good news. Terra's so-called validators halted their blockchain network late Thursday, They search for answers to this crisis that destroyed prices and wiped out billions of dollars in wealth. Let's talk more about what exactly may have happened with Caitlin Ostroff, markets reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Caitlin, I was trying to explain this story to my family last night, and I'm not going to lie and pretend that I understand all the mechanics. I don't. okay? but I've been doing this a long time. And I remember 2001 and I remember 2008 when we were talking about bond tranches and CDOs. Outside of all the technical jargon, which may just kind of blow right over many of our viewer and listeners' heads, is there any indication in your reporting, you've been on crypto, you did it in Miami for a long time, great stuff, that there's some element of just out-and-out fraud here?
7: I mean, it's hard to know what exactly happened with Terra. There have been a lot of concerns for a while about that. As a stable coin, it wasn't actually that stable. Um, As a so-called algorithmic stable coin, as you point out, it relies on kind of this sister currency, Luna, to keep it stable and incentivizes people to buy Luna when Terra starts to weaken and incentivizes people to buy Luna when the stable coin starts to get too strong. And what can happen um, and what's happened with other algorithmic stable coins in the past is that as soon as confidence breaks on one of those, both of them wind up going down and no one wants to buy either. And so they wind up in like this so-called death spiral. And so there are some people who say, you know, people investing in this should have known the risks because we've seen this happen before, not with this stable coin, this large, but we have seen it happen before. Um, and then other people are saying, you know, maybe investors were misled, but also this is an area that doesn't really have regulation. And so the level of information that someone buying this has to have yeah. isn't necessarily the same as, you know, if you buy shares in Apple.
1: And I, and I bring that up and we don't know what happened here. And I want to make that very clear. Nobody's accusing any anybody of anything. But I will say this, Caitlin, being as old as I am and reporting through 2001 and being one of the lead guys in 07 saying, watch out, here's what you know. Whenever you criticize something and people tend to come back with either, you know, you're old, you just don't get it. You're not smart enough when they divert, when they deflect, when they're not able to explain exactly what's going on. That is when, as a journalist like yourself, you kind of you kind of put your you know opens your eyes and say, what exactly is going on here? Who is Doe Kwon, the man behind Terra? He's been bizarre on Twitter lately. What do we know about this guy and his company?
7: I mean, he has worked in tech before, and he has had this, um, you know, a nonprofit that he's helped start to kind of back Luna. He's the creator of that and Terra USD, um, and he's been a very, very aggressive defender on, of it on Twitter. Not just this week, but even before then. You know, people who have um, voiced concerns about the stability of Terra USD, you know, he has criticized them and some of his followers heavily appreciated that because there is kind of this full-throated support of this project. And so, like, he has a tech background. There seemed to be a lot of faith in this project that it could maintain the stability where other algorithmic stablecoins failed. Um, And and obviously, as we've seen this week, that did not last.
1: Caitlin, we got to leave it there, but you've been doing some great work on this, and I'm just going to make a prediction just based on history going back to, I don't know, 1,500 or so, that there is a lot more to come on this story, and there will be some big revealing headlines, and I have no doubt you will break them. Caitlin Ostroff of The Journal. Caitlin, appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. Have a good weekend.
7: Thanks.
1: I think we've seen this picture before, folks. All right, on deck. A big market and big humanitarian story about food. CEO fertilizer producer Nutrien will join us live after the break with what he sees for prices and supplies for the rest of the year. This is Worldwide Exchange. Futures are higher. We're back after this. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's talk fertilizer and food. Back on September 17th of last year, we talked about how, given the huge moves in European natural gas prices, you needed to keep an eye on U.S. fertilizer producers because the European competitors were going to have a very tough time competing given their higher input costs. Not to Tudor on horn, but since that tweet, most fertilizer stocks have doubled since then. Take a look at shares of Nutrien, one of the largest fertilizer suppliers in the world. It is up 30% versus the S&P 500s, nearly 20% loss in a short period of time. But now there are concerns about food shortages around the world because of Russia's war on Ukraine. Let's talk about all of it in a CNBC exclusive. Nutrium interim CEO Ken Seitz is here. And Ken, really appreciate you coming on Worldwide Exchange. This is not just a stock story. It's a humanitarian story. I I read the transcript of your most recent earnings conference call. I know you guys are doing all you can to increase production because things like Belarus and Ukraine and Russia are offline. Where do you stand with production increases?
6: Yes, well, O'Brien, and pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. If we look at the impact that the conflict in Eastern Europe has had on supply of some critical crop nutrients, you know, and really across nitrogen, phosphate and potash, you know, Russia is uh, the largest exporter of nitrogen between Belarus and Russia. Uh, the two countries produce 40% of the world's potash. And so, yes, there are going to be some uh, some crop nutrient shortages and we are looking very closely at what we can do in this environment. We mentioned on our call, as you say, Brian, that we have the ability to ramp up potash production. We've done that over the last two years. We've increased potash production by 20%, and that's 70% of all the new production that's come uh, into the production stream over the last couple of years. And similarly, we've invested heavily in our nitrogen network so that we have uh, increased production by almost a million and a half tons since 2018. So we are the largest producer of crop nutrients in the world. We're looking now at what we can do to ramp up Further. And we'll have more to talk about over the next few months. We're just working with our engineers and our business people to see what that could look like. But, you know, we believe that we can we can help out in this environment.
1: Yeah. Well, part of the issues we noted was the higher back back in September, higher natural gas prices. Natural gas, a huge input cost in making nitrogen, ureas, phosphates, et cetera. Right now, Europe is sort of on the precipice of losing Russian natural gas. They're trying to get off it. There's been some pipeline interruptions already, et cetera, Ken. If if Europe either has their flow interrupted, uh, they choose to interrupt it, what would happen to global fertilizer costs? In other words, is there another leg higher potentially if Europe's energy crisis gets worse?
6: Yes, absolutely, Brian. It's a great point, because not only is Russia the largest exporter of nitrogen, they also obviously send gas, natural gas to Europe, and that's the feedstock for those European nitrogen plants. And so, you know, if you have $35 natural gas heading into Europe, and today it would be more than that, you know, the urea prices, nitrogen prices need to be quite high to sustain those plants and keep them running. Of course, last year, we saw natural gas into Europe at 40 to $60 per of Those plants shut down at that level. So, yes, Brian, it's absolutely the case that with the increasing cost of that critical feedstock, it's the, it's the majority of the operating cost for a nitrogen plant is natural gas. Um, we expect that there will be challenges for those European plants.
1: And, and I read on, your, on the transcript of your conference call and some of the Q&A, uh, Ken, that you do not expect this to get better any this year. It sounded like you, no matter what happens with the war, you were looking out to 2023 and beyond.
6: Yeah, those are the conclusions that we're coming to, Brian. And it's really, if we look at heading into the spring season, certainly in the northern hemisphere, we saw the channel inventories were at sort of his, average historical levels. In other words, this is prior to the conflict. There had been some supply disruptions, but for the most part, channels were full. Now, with the spring season underway in the northern hemisphere, our inventories are coming down and we expect that sort of physical shortages will be felt uh, soon. And that, again, with the challenges we're seeing in Easter Europe, both with exports, supply chain, logistics and sanctions, of course. Yeah, we'll, we see that there could be some challenges, certainly in the 2023.
1: Yeah. And you've also got to load those big ships, those dry bulk carriers. Uh, you're facing shipping challenges as well, right? Is that getting better? It,
6: no, we don't see that getting better. Um, in fact, I'm in Brazil right now, meeting with our team, and you know we're not seeing Russian vessels so, show up in Brazilian ports the way they used to. And, and to your point, Brian, that's exactly you know if we look at sanctions and what's being sanctioned, it's not necessarily on agricultural commodities,
7: yeah. but
6: it is on the activities to facilitate export, like shipping, like you know, ports uh, inviting Russian vessels into their terminals, like banking, insurance. And so, yeah, the things that facilitate export and the sanctions against them are causing these challenges as well.
1: Well, Ken, we really appreciate you coming on. It's, it's such a critical story just for crops and food for the, for the rest of the world. Already starting to see some shortages in places like Sri Lanka. Let's hope it doesn't expand. Ken sites of nutrient. Have a great day. Thank you very much.
6: Same to you, Brian. Thanks.
1: You're welcome. All right, time now for your weekly exclusive insider buying segment where we highlight the top five stocks being bought the most by their C-suite level execs. By the way, these aren't buybacks. This is people buying with their own money. And as always, the data comes with our thanks to Insider Score Verity Platforms. And as always, we are counting you down five to one. You ready? We are. Let's go. Here they are. The fifth most insider buying this week. Was it iHeartMedia, a $517,000 buy by CEO Bob Pittman, his seventh insider buy, and by the way, he's never sold. Number four, Parker Hannafin, first time on this list, $809,000 buy by a board member. That's his first insider buy in over 10 years. Stock three, Align Technology. CEO Joe Hogan, buying just under $2 million worth. He's been a big buyer in the past, but this is his first buy since 2019. Now let's get to some even bigger numbers. Second most insider buying, Aon, a board member, buying just over $4 bucks worth. That's his 11th insider buy, and by the way, buying at his highest price ever. And this is Aon's third appearance on our insider buy list, by the way, in about a year and a half to two years. But the most insider buying this week is Uber CEO Dara Shahi buying 200,000 shares valued at $5.3 million dollars. Cosmo Shahi also bought 200,000 shares late last year, but at a price nearly twice what he just bought. Uber's stock is down 44% this year. So there you go. Top five insider buys, iHeartMedia, Parker Hannafin, Align Tech, Aon, and Uber. And a reminder, we do this eh, almost every Friday. Can't do it during blackout periods around earnings, but otherwise we try. And it's a segment you will only see here on WEX or on CNBC Pro. By the way, sign up for CNBC Pro today. All right, coming up, we're trying to find some good value in this market. Liam Dalton of Axiom Capital Management, a man who has run money through many cycles, seen it all. He is up next to talk about what he thinks you should do right now. All right, welcome back. We've got a lot in store for you to close out another busy week, but I want to, there's our menu, but I got to hit this breaking news right now, guys, and I'm sorry to pull an audible on you. A huge headline from Elon Musk. Elon Musk tweeting out minutes ago, and I'm going to read, so I apologize for looking down. Quote, Twitter deal temporarily on hold. Pending details supporting calculation that spam slash fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users. Back on Monday, Twitter sort of said in a filing that false or spam accounts... We're less than 5% of its monetizable daily active users. Now, maybe you don't care about that, but you care about the fact that Elon Musk is twa- saying Twitter deal temporarily on hold pending these calculations. Twitter stock is getting just brutalized. On that headline, it is down 18% in the pre-market, back to 37 Remember, his deal was to buy the company for $54.20. So this is, this is a tweet from Elon Musk, ironically, a tweet about Twitter saying the deal, quote, temporarily on hold. He obviously almost seems concerned that there's not more fake or spam accounts. That's the bizarre part of his headline. Again, I'm sure we'll get more this breaking literally just minutes ago. Twitter stock down 18% more all day right here on CNBC, no doubt. All right, let's get back down to the macro markets and the continued drop in many stocks with the S&P 500 on track for its worst week since late January. Joining us now some perspective and guidance, Axiom Capital Management founder and chairman, Liam Dalton. Liam, we need your, your steady hand here. You've been through a number of cycles. I'm not calling you old. We had lunch about 20 years ago, I remember. Um, but this is a scary time for many people. What's your best advice to clients right now?
5: So I think there's a lot of talk about why uh, this is happening. I think the reasons for the decline are pretty well picked over. I mean, the dominant influence is obviously the inflation pressures and, and the Federal Reserve reversing course. But I think, you know, a plan of action is probably the most important thing for investors to have now because, you know, we went through a very extended period of time where conditions were very different. And as a result, it sets up a bit of a recency bias where people feel like they're constantly searching for where's the bottom, where's the bottom. And that I don't think is the, the most healthy approach on a day-to-day basis. You should just recognize that conditions have changed and there are steps that you should take proactively to make sure that your account and your, 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 the assets that you're managing are in good shape to be able to ha- handle a higher volatility environment. And, and this environment isn't likely to change very, anytime very soon. We're having some undulations up and down. Uh, that, that's, a lot of that has to do with the structure of the market. We've got people who recognize what's happening. There's a lot of hedging going on. There's a lot of short selling going on. And it's building up imbalances in the market. We're having these big bounces like we had January, February, March, and now we have this bigger leg down in May. So I think overall, it's just important to have a plan to get yourself your account in a position where it'll be better able to handle the volatility, number one, and you'll have a good cash reserve to own shares when the thing finally does stabilize. And that stabilization needs to be proven over a period of days and weeks and not just on a one day basis.
1: Yeah, well said. And I want to refresh our viewers, by the way, Uh, Liam, just one second. Twitter, we're showing Twitter alongside you, Liam, because Twitter is crashing. The stock's down 19 percent right now in a headline that Elon Musk saying the deal is temporarily on hold. That's why we're showing Twitter up there. There's his tweet. I guess he's upset about the fact that there's not more spam accounts. Sort of unclear what he's referring to. Reuters reporting a story, by the way, about these monetizable accounts. Just had to hit that. Liam, apologies. For the interlude there. But you look at what's going on with a Twitter with crypto, by the way, how much does the crypto crash, if at all, maybe it's zero percent, Liam, factor in to what's happening with stocks? Because they do seem to be correlated. I think it was Bitcoin at like a 0.82 percent correlation, which is pretty high to the Nasdaq.
5: Yeah, I, I think, uh, Brian, you're right. I mean, it's, it's just another sign of risk aversion. In fact, it's a very sensitive sign to, of risk aversion because toward the end of uh, the move in, in Bitcoin, it seemed to attract a lot of media attention. Uh, it was really uh, becoming a retail-y type uh, market. It got pretty frothy. And all of the indications suggest that in the early stages of this decline, there were hints, there were clues. Uh, we saw it obviously in the high growth stocks. They, they, they took the charge on the downside. They were the most sensitive to a change in Fed policy. And now what we've had is a joining of yep. a sort of a gang on the downside. And I think it's just broadened out. And all of those indications were kind of there for people to see.
1: Are you, are you buying quickly, Liam? I'm sorry. Are you buying
5: stuff right now? It's OK. I'm actually trying to hold on to the exposures I like. Some of them are commodity related. Some of them are devalue. You know, we're long short. So fortunately, we have the ability to short and hedge our portfolios. That's been very, very helpful. And as a result, we're trying to keep a big cash reserve because we still haven't seen the persistent signs yeah. of what we find in our proprietary studies for bottoms.
1: Liam Dalton needs your steady hand right now. And apologies for the breaking news there. Liam, we'll get you back on again soon. Have a great day, my friend. Thank you. Folks, just a reminder, Twitter shares are crashing down 21% right now in a tweet from Elon Musk that the deal to buy Twitter is, quote, temporarily on hold. That is his term. By the way, Tesla shares, they are higher on the news. Twitter down more than 20%. Tesla up 7%. More breaking news covering all of this on Squawk Box. Next, folks, we will see you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Big breaking news on Twitter continues next.